to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Morah. And the Canaanites were then in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel. And he pitched his tent with, the, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. And then over to Hebrews 1, 1 through 11. This too is God's word. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he, being dead, still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith." By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelled in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, And she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. So we're just going to look at a couple of things uh, in the book of Hebrews tonight. Um, And as we do that, I think it's important that we remind ourselves that, that Hebrews chapter 11 isn't just sort of dropped out of thin air. It's in the context, right, of the rest of the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews is one big argument as to why Jesus is better, right, than all the forms of revelation that have come before, than all the priests that have come before. He's the greater sacrifice than the sacrifice of the blood of bulls and goats. He's the greatest high priest who didn't serve in the copies in the tabernacle, but but served in the sanctuary of heaven itself. 
Hebrews is written to a congregation that is small and struggling and being persecuted because of their faith in Christ. And they're being tempted because they have put their hope in Jesus and not in the types and the shadows of the Old Testament. They put their, they've put their hope in the good things that have come in Christ. And so they are being threatened with persecution. And some of them are asking the question, is it worth it to follow Jesus? Or should we go back? Should we go back to temple service? Should we go back to the sacrifices of the Old Covenant? And the writer very very strongly, but probably pastorally, looks them in the eyes and says, don't do it. <laughs> Jesus is better. And now in here in chapter 11, he turns his attention to this whole aspect of faith. Because this writer of Hebrews, he doesn't just have a theological mind. He comes at them not just with a theological mind, but a, but a pastoral heart. He's wanting them to face their circumstances and come out on the other side of those circumstances with their faith in Christ intact. And to be people which are, if we can put it this way, shot through with faith is especially important. And the question he starts to answer here is, well, what is faith? What is faith? Our atmosphere today in the West, and maybe we can even say our political atmosphere today, doesn't help us that much. If you listen to politically conservative people talk today, faith is almost exclusively a matter of moral virtue. Right? Just moral virtue. It's about not doubting. Faith is about being loyal. Faith is about just persevering. Faith is about sticking to your convictions and so forth. For politically progressive people today, you hear the word faith, and it tends to be about intellectual sophistication. Questioning. Being skeptical. Pushing boundaries. That's maturity. That's keeping the faith. And so our cultural situation doesn't help us that much today as far as understanding what faith is. But the Bible's understanding of faith is pretty nuanced compared to both of these positions in our culture today. And there are four aspects of faith in these verses that we want to look at. We'll only be able to look at two of them tonight. Um, four aspects of faith that we need to... I'll, I'll give you the four, and then we'll look at the two uh, tonight. First, faith is rational, and we're going to see that. Second, faith is personal. Third, faith is foundational. And then fourth, faith is graceful. 
Right? A little play on words there, I understand. It's rational, personal, foundational, foundational, and graceful. So let's let's tackle at least two of those tonight. And maybe when I come back to the next time we can tackle the next two first. Look at faith. It is first, it is rational. Now, let me just reread, and I'm reading from the ESV here, but let me just reread verses 1 through uh, 3. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So faith, of course, is more than just rationality. It's more than just thinking. But listen, it's, it's never less. Faith takes thinking. Verse 6 says that you can't have faith in God unless you believe that He, what? Is. That He exists. That the things that the Bible says about Him are true. And, and, and verses 1 through 3 have for us some words that remind us that faith actually includes, it's a reasonable faith. The word conviction, for example, that we just read about in verse 1 can mean to validate by evidence. In verse 3, we're told that by faith we understand. Those are thinking words, right? We understand that the universe was created. And that word understand is a word that that's talking about thinking and talking about reasoning. So faith does this. Faith sees the things that we can see and it reasons, right? This is what faith does. It looks at the things that we can see and it reasons that this could not have happened by itself. It could not have happened by accident. So that there must be an unseen reality behind what we see and what is seen. So, for example, how do you know as a human being what you can see is good or bad. How do we know that something is good or bad? Or whether the action of a human being is good or bad? How? You actually can't even answer that question before you answer other questions. Namely this, what are we as human beings made for? Why are we here? What is the purpose of our creation? It's similar to you can't answer a question 
about whether a computer is a good computer unless you're judging what computers were made for, right? If you expect a computer to make you a sandwich or make you a three-course meal and you're judging computers by that, well, then it's going to be a pretty bad computer, right? It's not making dinner for you. But you have to judge something according to the purpose that it was created for. So what are human beings for, for example? What were we made for? If, if this world that we can see, and this is much of our society today, everybody believes that the world, many people believe that, well, the world is just everything that you can see. There's only nature, there's not supernature, right? There's only nature, there's only the natural, there's not the supernatural. But if that is true, if, that, if the world is all there is, then according to many in our day and age, we are here by what? Accident. By chance. And if that's the case, there's no real purpose for our lives. And so it's actually impossible to judge whether any action we do is right or wrong. We might feel that something like murder is wrong, that something like lying is wrong, that something like injustice is wrong and oppression is wrong, but if the world seen is all there is and there's nothing behind this world to give it structure and meaning, right? There's nothing behind this world. If seen is all there is, all statements of right and wrong are just mere opinions, right? No matter whether one person holds to that opinion or a whole culture holds to that opinion. Yet, we all have this deep conviction that certain things are, on the face of it, evil. That certain things are, on the face of it, wrong, unjust, wicked. Why? We could talk about that another time. But, but also, think about it this way. Also, if the things that are seen, mentioning here in Hebrews 11, if the things that are seen, if that is all there is, we can't even make sense of why certain things are, are pleasurable. Why they make us happy. Why we enjoy them. If this world is all there is, all the things that give us joy and make us happy and bring us pleasure are nothing more than chemical reactions in our brains. Serotonin and dopamine and so forth bouncing around inside our heads. It's just chemistry. But almost nobody believes that. They understand that things like love and joy and happiness are not simply chemical reactions in our brains. In fact, how can we really love other people if we are just convinced that our care for them and their care for us is nothing more than chemistry?
Oh, you only like me because of the chemical reaction I create in your brain. We, we all intrinsically know there's nothing meaningful and truly meaningful in that kind of view of the world. If the scene is all there is. How can it truly be good? Meaningfully be good? And if we believe, and we should, that love is better than hate and justice is better than injustice, then you cannot believe that this seen world is all there is. Not and be rational at the same time. Because what faith does is help us make sense of what we see. It's the assurance of things hoped for. Listen, the conviction of things not seen. Like absolute truth. Like order. We can observe order, but where did that order come from? Faith is more than reason, it's more than rationality, but it's never less. It looks at the world around us, its order, its beauty, the conviction of human beings that there is right and that there is wrong, that w- which we all know deep down inside, and it says, wait a minute. There must be something behind what is seen. And the Bible, of course, is saying, you're right, it's the creator of the universe. Jehovah is his name. He created all things by the word of his power. So faith, and and this is what our society and our culture gets wrong so often, is you hear people say, well, you have faith and I have what? Science, right? You have faith and I have reason. But the Bible says, no, no, faith is reasonable. It looks, as Hebrew says, and understands that the universe was created by the word of God. Why? So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Okay? So, faith first is reasonable. Second, though, and we won't go long tonight. Second, though, faith is personal. Faith is personal. Look at verses 4 to 8. Right? Especially look at, and we could, we could go back and we could actually probably do a sermon on each of these examples. Uh, look particularly at, at Noah. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, a flood, right, in reverent fear, constructed an ark. It took him years to do this, by the way, for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. 
By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. And we could read the whole list of the, the hall of faith here in Hebrews 11. And, and here's what's interesting. Most people think of faith as just unquestioning belief. Blind belief. Just have faith. Don't think. Don't ask questions. Abraham had a, a great life in Ur of the Chaldees, where he was called out. It was a good place to live. It was a fertile place to live. You could grow great crops there. He had safety there. He had security there. And then something, God, <laughs> comes into his life that unsettles him. And the next thing you know, he's headed off into the wilderness, not exactly sure where he was going. Hebrews tells us. And so faith is a personal encounter with the God of the universe so that a call comes, for example, into Noah's life, comes into Abraham's life. It's God saying, I want you personally. You're mine. I'm calling you out. And when that call comes into your life, you begin to reassess what? Everything. Your world is completely reoriented. What am I living for? What am I going to work for? What am I going to school for? Who am I really? Not just what I do, my positions in life, but who am I? Faith makes you radically question and changes the entire direction of your life when Christ comes to you personally. And that means, this is why, by the way, that faith can't be purely rational. There has to be a personal element to J.I. Packer's great book, you'll probably remember, Knowing God. Um, probably one of the greatest books about God that has been written in the last two centuries. And he says there's a radical difference between knowing about God and knowing God. Between knowing facts about him and knowing him deeply, personally, and intimately. Faith changes the entire direction of your life. And that means it can't be purely rational. There has to be a personal element to it. Martin Lloyd-Jones actually talks about this when he preached on this passage. And he talks about a friend um, when Martin Lloyd-Jones, you know, was a physician before he was a pastor. And he talks about a friend, um, a physician friend of his, who rose to the top tiers of his career. And he was at the top of his game. And he was getting ready to be married until his fiance died suddenly before they were even married. And his friend came over to Lloyd-Jones' house and just sat by the fire, as you might do in situations like this, and just stared and cried. 
He didn't want to talk. And this friend came over to Lloyd-Jones's house and he just sat there in silence. And Lloyd-Jones said that in that silence he heard God's personal call on him that reminded him that all the status and all the success in this world was not sufficient to actually face life. And in that moment, his faith didn't become less than rational, but it became deeply personal. And so this passage is teaching us that we don't just, we don't just believe because it makes sense. Christianity... Our faith is a rational faith. Is there much mystery to it? Absolutely. Anytime the immortal, invisible, only wise God communicates to us mortal, visible, limited humans, there are going to be things that we don't understand. He stoops down and accommodates us. But we don't just believe in Christ because it makes sense. We don't just believe because it makes sense that there is a God and that He created the world. And we're like, oh, seems rational to me. No, there's this deep sense of God's call on us and His love for us in Jesus. And there's this deep intrusion of Christ into our lives that makes those who have trusted in him do things like, oh, I don't know, build an ark while everybody's making fun of you. And saying, rain? I don't see any rain. What are you doing, Noah? Have you lost your mind? Or go to a country that we've never heard of living there as a stranger and actually never coming into possession of it. That's what Abraham does. Why do they do that? Because God has deeply entered their hearts and their lives. We can never make our faith simply assenting to propositions. James says the demons do that. The demons believe and they tremble. But it's the conviction that God wants us as his own personally. And he's shown us that love in Christ. And this shows itself, of course, in the big either-or questions of life. And the big either-or question in life. Either there is no God and everything is meaningless, or there is a God, and if there is, nothing is more central to my well-being and my understanding of the world and myself and my relationship with others than my relationship with Him. Nothing. He's not just the great grandfather in the sky that helps me out. 
He's central to my understanding of myself and my purpose and the purpose of everything else. And and this is the either-or question of life. There is no middle. There is no middle if you want to live in integrity, if you want to live in honesty. And if Jesus came into the world to seek and to find us, to save us, that God came down to rescue me, I can't respond, you can't respond any other way but giving ourselves radically to him. What are we seeing? Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my what? All. And when this happens, we are finally beginning to personally absorb or appropriate what was perhaps just a rational concept to us at worst. Or, or even mostly that. And how does this happen? This, not just rational understanding, but this deeply personal understanding. Well, it doesn't have to be some dramatic situation in which the light comes on and you have an aha moment. It doesn't happen that way for everyone. Many people have spoken about their conversion not so much as a a moment in time, but as a sort of the dawning of the sun in which they look back over the last year or two and their lives over the last year or two, and and they, they know they came to Christ during that time. They They come to realize, wait a minute, the Lord has saved me. But they couldn't point you to a date and a time. Now some people can. If you read the life of C. Everett Koop, he, he describes, his, he, was, he was the Surgeon General of the United States. He describes his coming to faith like that. He says, I couldn't give you a time and a date, but all I know is over the past couple of years before that, I was deeply searching for the Lord, and somewhere in that time, he found me. And he saved me. Or if you've had a pastor for any long period of time, Seth hasn't been here for too long, and you had Pastor Goldstrom before that, but no doubt if you've hung around the church for a while and know a pastor very well, you've heard that pastor quote passages, some passages more than others. They're their favorite passages, right? Or, or phrases from a hymn that they have quoted over and over and over again. Why? But because, and, and at my church, my, the people in my church could probably tell you, oh, this is Danny's favorite passage. He quotes this all the time. Or this is his favorite line in the hymn. He quotes that, uh, he quotes that a lot. Why? Because those were passages 
that the Lord used in my life to help me understand the call to faith. The deep love of Jesus for His people. To understand the glory of the Gospel more and Christ's love more. What are those passages for you in which you came to understand them and the Lord just drove the truth of His love right into the deepest core of your being? And you treasure those passages because they've given you confidence and hope and a deep love for the Lord. They remind you of who Jesus is and what He has done. And the Lord has used them to to personalize, if I can put it that way, the Gospel in your heart. And you went, as you came to grasp those passages, you went from being, maybe if we can put it this way, maybe nominal in your faith, to knowing that you belonged to Christ. You were His. For me, it's passages like, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans, in which Paul says, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And he lists a bunch of things, and just in case he missed anything, he says, and nothing else in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And you're convinced you're His, and He's never going to let you go. We're going to stop here tonight as we've started to look at the things unseen that lay behind the things that are seen and the personal intrusion of faith in our lives. And praise the Lord, right, that He has found us. So let's pray together. Father, thank You for this truth. Thank You for the truth of Your Word. We've just scratched the surface talking about things that are unseen. Reminding ourselves what drove Noah, what drove Abraham to do the things that they do is you found them, Lord. And you called them. Personally. Lord, help us to never lose sight of that sense of your personal deep love for us. And if we ever doubted, Lord, help us simply to look at the cross in which Jesus gave himself for us. We ask it in his name. Amen.